Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Thanks to the organizers for uh, inviting me to participate in this symposium. Uh, I've really been enjoying sitting uh, in the seats like a fan, uh, learning a lot about the cutting edge in uh, um, understanding human brain evolution, and it's, uh, it's very inci- exciting indeed. So the organizers have given me the job of talking about cortical microstructure uh, and possible human specializations. Microstructure refers to the very fine anatomy of the cerebral cortex that can only be seen by cutting thin sections and looking at them under a, a microscope. Uh, it's a level below uh, gross anatomy, which can be observed with the naked eye or an MRI scanner. Um, and it's a level of organization perhaps above uh, uh, molecular uh, expression in tissues that is often studied by, by grinding it up or homo- homogenizing tissue. Um, but it's a, a, a very important level of organization in which cells interact with one another and circuits are formed. So chimpanzees and other great apes are our closest living relatives Um, and they resemble us in many ways. Yet human psychology is distinctive from uh, the great apes in important respects, and the mission that unites all of us in the symposium today is that we want to understand the neural changes that correlate with human cognitive evolution. And what you see here is just a partial list of proposed human psychological specializations, Um, from a book by uh, the the philosopher Peter Carruthers and includes things like gossip, um, language, mind reading, etc. Things that we're familiar with from our own mental life. In studying human brains compared to the brains of other species, then ideally what we'd like to know is how did the genotype and the brain phenotype change to support the evolution of modern human behavior and cognition. This, of course, is a very ambitious research program that uh, requires a lot of collaboration and interdisciplinary science. And uh, this is just a list of the sorts of things that one would like to be able to detail as differences between the human brain phenotype and the phenotype of uh, uh, chimpanzees, great apes, and other primates, and then to begin to link some of those changes in brain phenotype to those cognitive psychological specializations. So one neural change of great significance must be increased neocortical size and changes to its organization. Humans have freakishly large brains compared to our body size. They're estimated to be about three and a half times larger than one would expect for a primate of our body size. And uh, um, indeed, the brain of uh, fossil hominins has been shown to triple in size within roughly the last two and a half, three three million years with an accelerating rate. Most of this growth in size is disproportionately due to enlargement of uh, um, the neocortex, which is what you see in this slide, it's the outer wrinkled surface of the brain in humans and chimpanzees, and it comprises about 80% of brain mass in humans. And you can see that very nicely in the next slide, where uh, you have a cross-section through the mid-portion of the brain. It's a coronal section, unstained. And you can see the neocortex here, including uh, the gray matter, which is this outer uh, mantle which contains cell bodies, and then the inner white matter of myelinated axon fiber connections, and it represents a very large fraction of this brain section. 
the gray matter of the neocortex has a particular architecture that can be appreciated under the microscope. So if you take a region like this and uh, you stain it, put it under the microscope, um, what you see here blown up is about the size of, of your pinky nail um, in thickness, not very large. And this is comparing a macaque, chimpanzee, and human primary somatosensory cortex. You can see that neurons are arranged in stacks, about a couple of hundred uh, neurons deep, somewhere between two and 300 neurons, depending on the cortical region, depending on the species. And there are regular patterns of variation in the uh, size of the neurons between layers and the packing density of neurons between layers. And this allows researchers to recognize and subdivide the uh, layers of the cortex into six subdivisions. I should point out that each layer within the cortex then has a really stereotypical pattern of input and output connections. As you go across regions of the cerebral cortex within an animal, within a brain, uh, there are also distinct differences in the morphology of the microstructure of the cortex. So this is just from one uh, orangutan brain showing primary motor cortex with very large distinctive output neurons called uh, BET cells scattered in layer five in comparison to primary visual cortex, which has an elaboration of sublamina in layer four, which is the, the part that receives uh, inputs conveyed by the thalamus. So distinct differences across the neocortex uh, occur in cellular architecture, which correlates with differences in myelination, patterns of gene expression, connectivity, and function. So you can look at the microscopic anatomy uh, of sections of the brain, of the neocortex, to get some insight uh, into uh, changes in circuitry and function. Some regions can be easily recognized across species as homologous, uh, in a large range of mammals based on uh, those features. Others are more recently parcellated and subdivided in particular branches of evolution. In primates in particular, we've seen the proliferation of many different separate visual areas with distinct uh, architectonic signatures, uh, which reflects the uh, enhanced um, specialization for vision within our lineage. And there's also elaboration of many more prefrontal areas in primates, which are important in guiding motor plans and decisions. Making. And what I want to point out here is that um, from looking at that kind of cell architecture and other uh, markers, uh, one can draw homologies between uh, cortical area subdivisions across species. And indeed, in humans and macaque monkeys, there are homologs or uh, similar uh, um, cortical areas defined by common descent uh, that have been defined. And there are very few, if any, well-recognized, brand-new cortical areas in human brain evolution. So most of what our neocortex does is built upon modifications of intrinsic circuitry in cortical areas or rewiring that, um, um, that uh, um, connectivity or changes in cell architecture or cell numbers. Okay, so using microstructure as a guide then to parcelate different cortical areas. Um, you can define distinct zones of the cerebral cortical mantle. Uh, here are regions uh, of the inferior frontal cortex, uh, which are homologs in chimpanzee of Broca's area. And they can be mapped across a series of sections and volumes and total numbers of neurons extracted. And uh, my lab and uh, uh, other researchers have, have done this with several particular cortical areas uh, in humans and chimpanzees and some other great apes. And so the next slide shows uh, a summary of some of those, those results. And what you see in this slide is uh, the total list of particular cortical areas so far 
studied, defined by architectonic microstructural definitions, and the size difference between humans and chimpanzees. So how many times bigger is this defined cortical area in a human as compared to a chimp? And uh, they're color-coded and rank-ordered from the least expanded to the most expanded. What you'll see is that overall neocortical gray matter is about four times bigger in humans than chimps, so perhaps we can take that as our standard here. So areas like Wernicke's area, homolog, area TPT in the left hemisphere, which is certainly important for language function in humans, is not differentially expanded expanded in the human neocortex. However, uh, some of the most differentially expanded include regions in the frontal lobe, in the prefrontal cortex, uh, like area 44 and 45, which are components of Broca's area, important for speech, uh, and also area 10, which is the frontal polar cortex, uh, which is very important for undertaking initiative and very long-term abstract planning. Um, Putting those uh, full difference data onto uh, a map of the cerebral cortical surface uh, from Broadman. Here's what you see. Notably, there are vast stretches of the cerebral cortex in humans that we don't have any color coding for, indicating that we simply don't have the comparative data yet in grade apes. So this is severely lacking. Uh, collaborative sort of data uh, of the sort that Jim Rilling was talking about based on MRI might suggest that there's uh, expansion in certain areas like the temporal cortex, but uh, we don't have uh, um, precise um, subdivisions of those cortical zones yet defined. Uh, but interestingly, this pattern of differential region enlargement uh, does match relatively well with what's known from uh, comparisons of warping the cortical surface uh, of macaque monkey into human. And looking at the amount of disproportionate enlargement of that cortical surface is really concentrated in the association cortical areas of the frontal lobe, parietal lobe, and temporal lobe. So this is just reinforcing the things that Jim Rilling, Katarina, Simondefri have already been talking about, that uh, uh, while primary sensory motor areas like the primary uh, sensory cortex, primary visual cortex, don't show such great expansion in human neocortical evolution. It is the association areas that do. And interestingly, uh, comparing the differential uh, deformation of the cortical surface from human infancy to adulthood, there is a very similar pattern as well, suggesting that this is based on some underlying uh, um, conserved developmental regulatory mechanisms. Okay, so Now I want to talk a little bit about specializations of the intrinsic cytoarchitectonic organization within cortical areas. Uh, Changes in the relative cortical area size are an important part of the story of human neocortical specialization, but it's also possible that the internal cellular organization and connectivity of regions might have changed in uh, humans. So what you see here is a panel of uh, a number of different cortical areas of interest indicated here by, uh, by numbers and shown on the map up here from a human brain uh, in humans and chimpanzees. This is a cell body stain, uh, which shows you the distribution of just neurons. Somewhat similar to the data that Katarina Semendefri was just talking about, in our lab, we've recently been undertaking an examination of a large sample of 12 humans, 12 chimpanzee brains, studying those six cortical areas across the neocortex in both hemispheres and looking at uh, the neuropil fraction within the gray matter of the cerebral cortex. This is an example of chimpanzee uh, motor cortex and uh, the systematic random sampling of image frames collected. Uh, uh, High magnification view, you can see the cell bodies of neurons and glia. And the unstained 
portions in between correspond to what I, I call here the neuropil fraction. That is composed of uh, dendrites, axons, synapses, and microvasculature. You can then take these images, turn them into a binary, and calculate the amount of space in between cell bodies, which corresponds to that space available for interconnectivity, the neuropil fraction. When you do this across uh, all those areas, both hemispheres, in humans and chimpanzees, uh, this is is what you see. Notably, in chimpanzees, all cortical areas have similar neuropil fraction, similar space for interconnectivity, except that primary auditory cortex actually is a little bit lower statistically as compared to the other regions. In humans, it's a very different pattern. Um, We again find that uh, frontal polar cortex has more space for interconnectivity. And here also uh, area FI, the frontoinsular cortex, which contains very interesting neurons called uh, von Economo neurons, which are important for the integration of uh, emotional signals and and decision making. Uh, Here also in humans shows more space for interconnectivity. Uh, Interestingly, this part of Broca's area, also part of the prefrontal cortex, doesn't show this differential increase in neuropil fraction suggesting that this is selective by region, and it's also notable that uh, uh, this variable does not correlate with overall brain size, so this may not just be a scaling correlate. So what is potentially driving uh, this proxy measure for interconnectedness within these cortical areas and this evident specialization of prefrontal circuitry? Well, um, uh, you've already seen some images uh, of, of the kind of increased elaboration of prefrontal neurons in humans. Uh, they've got greater uh, dendritic arborization, a greater density of spines. Uh, this has been known from doing uh, silver impregnation studies of uh, neurons in human postmortem tissues. Uh, these neurons in the prefrontal cortex in layer three are more complex than neurons in primary visual cortex. These neurons, which you can study, are called pyramidal neurons because they have this kind of triangular shape soma, and they represent uh, the majority of neurons in the cerebral cortex, around 75-80% of them, and uh, they're uh, the ones that uh, are excitatory and have outgoing projections away um, from the cerebral cortex. So we've been studying this in chimpanzees as well to see whether this uh, um, increased dendritic arborization, increased uh, synaptic spine density in the prefrontal cortex is in fact unique to humans. And here's an example of uh, Golgi impregnation of a chimpanzee neuron and uh, a close-up of of a view of a dendritic shaft showing those uh, um, spine protrusions. Um, We trace these under the microscope and we're able to create three-dimensional reconstructions where we can analyze this geometric data. The summary of the results is that... uh, um, Uh, The study is ongoing, but we have a lot of samples already done, and chimpanzees are very much like humans in showing this increased uh, complexity of neurons in the prefrontal cortex in layer three. So it's possible that this signal we're picking up with increased neuropil fraction, increased interconnectivity selectively in these parts of the prefrontal cortex in humans uh, is due to uh, increased elaboration of neurons in other layers or maybe a greater magnitude of elaboration, but this general pattern is present in chimpanzees as well. Okay, so we can also look at other specializations of cell types, innervation and biochemistry. So just very briefly, in addition to uh, the majority of those neurons in the cerebral cortex, which are excitatory, pyramidal-shaped neurons, also a significant number, around 20 or 30%, depending on the region, depending on the species, are local inhibitory 
uh, neurons that express the neurotransmitter GABA. Um, they make short-range projections, and they synapse um, on uh, projection neurons as well as on one another. They can be defined based on differences in morphology, connectivity, uh, physiology, and uh, gene expression. Uh, importantly, uh, some of these parvalbumin-positive neurons, which uh, have very widespread horizontal uh, arbors, seem to be very important in uh, managing uh, spike timing and synchronicity among uh, cortical circuits. Um, they show uh, uh, depletions in their numbers and other dysfunctions in neuropsychiatric disorders that have cognitive impairments like uh, schizophrenia. So they're situated perfectly um, at the interface of uh, managing uh, cortical um, cognitive functions. Um, you can look at these under the microscope uh, and, and count their numbers in different species. Here we've done this in humans, chimpanzees, macaques, a number of different frontal lobe areas, including those important for language in the medial prefrontal cortex, uh, area that is uh, consistently shown to be involved in uh, um, functional imaging studies for theory of mind, mental state attribution, which is perhaps uh, unique in, uh, or uniquely specialized in humans. And long story short, these GABAergic inhibitory interneuron circuits in humans are not any different than what you see in their distribution uh, in chimpanzees and macaques. Neither the long vertical uh, projecting intracolumnar types nor the horizontally widespread transcolumnar types. Thus, it appears that human cognitive specializations uh, of the functions supported by these cortical regions are built on a foundation of conserved inhibitory interneuron distributions and circuits. There are a couple other markers that you can also look at. Um, um, the cerebral cortex receives uh, innervation from subcortical areas uh, that supply neuromodulators like dopamine, uh, acetylcholine, and serotonin. And uh, these uh, um, modulate the um, receptivity of uh, neuronal circuits. They're very important for attention, learning, and memory function in the prefrontal cortex, also affect in neuropsychiatric disorders. And uh, we have found that uh, um, humans and chimpanzees together actually share greater um, neuromodulator innervation supply in the prefrontal cortex in comparison to macaque monkeys. So this appears to be a, a human uh, chimpanzee, perhaps a grade ape specialization of prefrontal circuits. Um, and also, you're going to hear about this um, in, in uh, two talks from now, so I'm not going to belabor this. There's also, uniquely in the human great ape clade, uh, increased densities of von Economo neurons, which are important for uh, social cognition. Um, and perhaps it's no coincidence, then, that we share important similarities in microstructure with our close cousins, the great apes. Um, these sorts of uh, uh, similarities might correlate with similarities, enhancements of learning, attention, and social cognition, uh, which underlie um, um, things that you can see in great apes that bear some resemblance to ourselves. Uh, highly attentive social learning, leading uh, to, tr to traditions in behavior uh, and regional variation uh, in, in uh, uh, these sorts of uh, activities like, like nut cracking, hunting, um, um, termite fishing, and even grooming practices. So to conclude, 
in this talk, I just wanted to highlight the fact that uh, human neocortical microstructure uh, has certainly shown evidence of, of modification along numerous branch points in the lineage, ultimately leading to ourselves. And it's important, I think, to recognize the adaptive roots of these specializations, uh, not only always focusing on the human terminal branch. Uh, yet there are some distinctive features of human neocortical microcircuitry uh, that, that one might uh, look for that would correlate with uh, cognitive specializations. Um, I'd like to acknowledge uh, um, many different uh, um, institutions for providing tissue, which is critical for doing this kind of research. Uh, many collaborators involved uh, directly with this research, uh, people in the lab and funding agencies. And, and thank you. So we set out to um, ask some, a very specific question, and that is whether or not we could determine whether or not there were any differences that we could detect between living neurons, between humans and bonobos and chimps. We'd like to record from them. We'd like to see their activities. It's very hard to do. You've heard about, uh, obviously, all the ethical issues and complexity issues of doing that. Uh, and there are obviously some, some caveats to uh, leading into it. But this is our, our aim, is to look at the individual um, cell level and then build up from there to see how these cells functionally interact with each other. Now, uh, some recent technology uh, has developed that has allowed us to approach this project. And so for the last uh, couple of years, we've been involved in attempting to develop some strategies that allow us to look at live human uh, and great ape neurons. And this is a result of a, a remarkable discovery by uh, Shinya Yamanaka in Japan. And what he discovered is that you can take somatic cells, skin cells, and grow them up in culture dishes. And if you add uh, four very specific genes to those fibroblasts, the fibroblasts will reprogram themselves into embryonic stem cells. And from those embryonic stem cells, one can then generate, through a variety of protocols, neurons and other tissues as well. So this would be the thought we had, that we would go to being able to look at live neurons. These are called uh, induced pluripotent cells. And we've done this successfully in human cells and we began to collect fibroblasts from the great apes. So obviously, I'll start off by telling you all the caveats. I mean, I'm aware of the uh, restrictions. You know, this is in a culture dish, right? We're going to miss all the nurturing part that goes into the development of neurons. Diet. We're controlling that, actually. The cells, all the cells are going to get exactly the same diet as they mature. Uh, not a lot of social interaction. <laughs> Not, not bad, but you'll see. But not, not, They miss the in vivo context, although we're, we're considering some ways to do this. And really, uh, even if we find differences there, what's the relevance of an in vitro measure for the in vivo behaviors that we're looking at? So we're aware of these limitations, but nevertheless, uh, are the differences that are detectable at a cellular level uh, relevant to our understanding of human origins. And we pose this not as a solution in a broader sense, but as a new tool or a different tool to ask these 
a specific question. So overview is we're going to show you, I'll show you how we derive these cells and uh, how we differentiate them into neurons, give you some evidence that they actually are functioning and we can uh, examine them. And then we'll ask whether or not they recapitulate any of the basic differences that others have already discovered. Can we recapitulate those differences in the dish? And then I'll give you one example of a variety of uh, observations we've made that are provocative. So derivation. Uh, you know, there are differences in terms of the number of chromosomes between humans and chimps. There are very specific sequence differences, for example, in mitochondria uh, in chimps and in humans that we can look to see whether or not they're recapitulated. And then we'll look at the reprogramming factors. Or when they are reprogrammed, do they reprogram in the same manner that the human cells reprogram? And as they are, are, what about the differences in differentiation? Do they, are they different in the initial process or their capacity even to differentiate using the exact same technology and the same conditions? So the cells grow as fibroblasts in much the same way. Uh, they look very much the same. We use these factors, and it's another whole another discussion how and why this, this this reprograms. But just suffice it to say, we're taking advantage of of this uh, ability. In all cases, uh, the fibroblasts do reprogram, and from those reprogrammed clones, we can pick individual clones and generally ten or so clones from each patient and expand them uh, as individual clones from each individual person. And we can do this successfully for uh, bonobos, chimps, and humans. I'll, report, I'll be reporting on uh, six human fibroblasts. And these are human embryonic stem cells derived independently also of humans. And we have two bonobos and two chimps that I'll be talking about uh, today. So they do contain the appropriate uh, chromosomal structure. So the chimps and the bonobos have 48, and the humans have uh, 46. Uh, at, as Pascal uh, alerted us to, there's a very specific, although the size of this sequence within the mitochondria of human and chimps the same, there is a DNA structural difference in this area. So we used primers, which were common to both, and amplified the DNA and sequenced it and found, in fact, that the chimp sequence corresponds to the chimp, the bonobo sequence corresponds to the bonobo samples, and the human corresponds to the human. So we're keeping our samples correct, and they're recapitulating their functions. All the molecular uh, reprogramming markers, and I'm not going to go into some detail of this, but uh, when we do reprogram them, uh, the bonobos, the chimps, and the humans all express the same genes as they are reprogrammed. And as we differentiate each of the subjects' uh, cells into uh, what are called embryoid bodies and then characterize for whether or not the cells within that embryo body have differentiated into three major lineages, they do that. So we have ectoderm, mesoderm, and endodermal markers evidenced in the embryoid bodies. So they're differentiated appropriately uh, in the same way under, the, under similar temporal uh, constraints. Next, we have developed over time conditions uh, using specific factors that allow us to differentiate the embryo bodies now into neural rosettes, 
which are the uh, a precursor, almost, almost um, early, like taking on the structure of a, a node cord. And those can be dissociated then and differentiated over a period of time into neural progenitor cells, which are DAPI positive, SOX2 positive, and they proliferate as basically neural stem cells. And at this stage, we're not finding any differences between our subjects. At that stage, we, we isolate the progenitor cells and begin the extensive differentiation into mature neurons to determine whether or not they have any, uh, whether or not they can differentiate into neurons. At the early stages, they begin to grow processes, they extend uh, axons, and as they mature, we can uh, look at the morphological characteristics of the cells, we begin to see that they, they not only extend processes and dendrites, they make synapses, and they make spines. We isolate, we, we can characterize the neurons uh, by using a virus that expresses GFP under the promoter of a mature neural marker, and we, they, we can then isolate cells, express nicely in all the subjects, and then we can patch clamp the cells with electrophysiological recording to determine whether or not the cells uh, elicit action potentials, and are they, are they spontaneously firing action potentials in the culture dish. And we're still in the process of doing it. And in fact, we have not been able to find differences between uh, any of the primates using uh, this basic technology. Now, clearly, we're going to be looking deeper with new techniques and different techniques as we pursue, pursue this. But they're all living neurons. They're all connected with each other. And they're doing quite well. So what are the, some of the known differences that have been found between the two uh, functionally? And are they recapitulated? We see. Uh, this was a discovery made by Ajit, and we've collaborated with him over the years on this. Uh, and he uh, discovered that, he and his colleagues, that NU5GC, uh, an enzyme that places acylic acid on a protein, uh, is missing or mutated in humans relative to the primates. So you sh that enzyme is not present. And this occurs at this branch point, so we are alone in not being able to uh, have this functional protein. When we differentiate our cells into neurons and look for the expression, this is uniquely expressed in the brain, we find in chimps and bonobos are neurons expressing this enzyme, but it's absent uh, in humans. So we can recapitulate this phenomena for future investigations into mechanisms. A very interesting discovery was made some years ago that there's a splice variant in a protein that is neuropsin, which is thought to be involved in spine formation. And there's a, a splice variant in humans so that they make two versions of this particular uh, protein, which is different from chimps and bonobos. And this is from their original paper, where they have the two splice variants being shown in humans and in placenta. And here are all the different species that they uh, tested that don't have that splice variant. We took our uh, samples, and while there is the single variant in our chimp and bonobos, we have the splice variant evident in the human, which allows us another vehicle to go after this in, in, in some way. So in the first part, what I've showed you is there are, we have character, character typically normal. Neurons express differential markers, and they are actively uh, neurons in the dish. And many of the normal differences or the predetermined uh, pre differences we can recapitulate in this uh, setting. So 
Can we highlight any other differences? What, what are the things that we might expect to see given what we've heard already about uh, how extraordinarily large the human brains are? Would, would that give us any hint as to some of the things that we might be looking for? Well, to look for differences, one, one general strategy is to search for gene expression differences. And this is really one of the exciting things for those of us interested in cell and molecular biology is that we're looking not at post-mortem tissue to look at dead RNA samples, but rather living cells. And we're looking at the activity of the expressed uh, genes. Uh, so we'll, we've, we've taken a, a several approaches. We can do this by microRNA, microarrays, um, with uh, sorted populations for specific types of cells and looking at uh, mRNA. We can do deep sequencing for really a, looking at non-coding RNAs and, and, and much more of a uh, broader uh, approach to RNA. And we can do proteomics, metabolomics, and lipidomics. But I'll tell you one story with the microarrays. And the way we do this is to differentiate the cells into neurons. Uh, and then make triplicates of these uh, samples and put the RNA uh, cDNAs on arrays and determine on these arrays where there's tens of thousands of genes that can be interrogated, whether or not there are any differences between them. So we have multiple replicates so we can look at the differences between them. The data that comes out then can be analyzed not just on the individual gene basis, but we can uh, there, there are algorithms that allow one to cluster the genes into uh, functional categories to see whether or not they're important. And we're, I'm just showing here 15 biological processes that are well above an odds ratio of, uh, of two or three. So think of these as standard deviations. So these are clusters of genes that are six odds ratios of six, five uh, greater differences between humans versus bonobos and chimps. And what these uh, categories here mean that there's a cl cluster of, say, 25 genes that fall into something involved in cell uh, movement. So we looked at these high-difference uh, genes. What we come up with is a very interesting observation. That is that cellular movement, uh, cell adhesion, cell migration, taxis, are all uh, features suggesting some mi migration or, or motility difference that might be intrinsic to these cells. So we've been setting up assays to look at function uh, of these living cells in these motility assays to see if we can find anything uh, there. So here's one assay where we let the cells go into confluency. These are neural progenitor cells. And then we scratch the surface, separating the two populations of cells from each other. And then, um, and you can see from, it, it clustered very uh, quickly together, hard to determine. So the alternative is to use the retrovirus to label just the sampling the cells. Then we can do areas of uh, analysis where we can measure only one cell at a time and look at directionality as well as uh, the rates of migration. When we do that, and we can then stratify the cells, uh, zero plane them, and get an idea of uh, just the directionality and the numbers of cells and, and whether or not they're targeting. And with thousands of cells being analyzed, what we find is that there's an interesting pattern of difference that occurs in humans. While the hum human neurons are focused in their pattern of migration, the chimp and bonobo cells generally are, have a broader 
uh, array of, of directions that they're traveling. We've done this uh, also to look at uh, the length and the speed at which the cells travel. And now we're, this is looking at thousands of movies. Uh, well, I should say t- uh, 20, 30 movies for each uh, animal, and then thousands of individual cells are able to track. And when we plot this, what we see is that uh, the average velocity uh, over, over time is much faster in the, pri- in the primates than it is in humans, statistically by, by uh, a great amount. And this can be seen in another way. So here we have um, the total number of cells on uh, human versus apes are significantly, the mean velocity is significantly faster. And if you break it out by individuals and uh, 20 or 30 movies per individual, the apes are, are, are significantly faster in terms of their migration rate in vitro. So I'll leave you with this, with the idea that we are uh, we, we're beginning to develop uh, assay systems using uh, living cells that allows us to uh, care, to uh, extract uh, new information about RNA, about the anatomy, and about the functional characteristics of the cells. And we're developing new uh, assay systems that allow us to determine whether or not the genes that we do find out that are different are functionally important in the context uh, and, and within the limitations that we have. So um, we're, we're beginning to find these cellular differences, as I just uh, summarized, and we, we, we believe that this will be a useful additional assay system within which to look for differences uh, between living primate neurons. And of course, we need to thank a lot of people that have put a lot of time into these studies over the years to get us to the point where we are right now, building our in-house zoo. Uh, Carol has been uh, a leader in the lab uh, uh, on, in this program and uh, initially started out with us, and Allison now has his own lab. And uh, the, the technicians in the lab have been tremendously helpful and, and, and inspired by some of the questions that we're able to, to ask here. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. And um, first, I want to say something about the Vodacama cells or Ben's. Uh, is that they are not uniquely human. Um, they are uh, characteristic features of frontal insular cortex and anterior cingulate cortex in mammals with brains typically 400 grams or larger. They're characteristic then of, of ape and human brains, and they're also, we find them in elephants, and we find them in whales, um, and we suspect that there is a common uh, uh, related uh, type of cell probably present in all mammals in anterior insular cortex. Uh, and it's an interesting story about trying to understand how those specializations come about. Anyway, um, I'm going to focus on the frontal insular cortex, which is this red wedge of tissue here, which lies between the insula here and the orbital frontal cortex here. And the insular cortex in mammals represents sensory inputs of taste and visceral and motor control mastication swallowing in food consumption and in digestion. And the insular cortex in primates, especially in humans, receives the differentiated somatic inputs relayed up from the spinal cord that have to do with warmth, coolness, and sensual touch, which mediate interpersonal contact. 
Now, von Kahnemo was, was actually one of many of the, of the early neuroanatomists to describe uh, these cells. Uh, they were described by Cajal and by Betts and others earlier, but von Kahnemo did the best job. And uh, so we decided to, to uh, uh, assign that name. The name that von Kahnemo himself used for them were the rod and the corkscrew shells based on, on their respective shapes. And here are some uh, Bielschowski stains showing the axons for the, uh, uh, von, the, von, the Venz with its very characteristic uh, morphology. Um, and this is a work that uh, uh, Carly Watson and I did uh, on Golgi reconstructions. And this is a typical, actually rather large, uh, 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 layer 5 pyramidal cell and, and, and a nearby ven. And you can see that, that the, the vens essentially have uh, a very much simpler dendritic uh, uh, layout with a cell body located here at a single apical dendrite and a, and a, a relatively unbranched basal dendrite. And that's the hallmark for the vens. And that we presume that, that the vents are, are specializations of, of, of pyramidal cells, and that somewhere in the developmental program for vents is a suppression of this branching. And indeed, we have some, even some clues as to what the, the genetic basis of that might be, uh, possibly in the form of, of the, the gene DISC1. Now, this is a very laborious slide to prepare. I, I actually sat down and plotted each ven within the section for a chimpanzee, a gorilla, and a human, so in a slice through FI, uh, to give you a sense of where they're located. They're particularly located in this very characteristic juncture here uh, in, this, in this spot here. And you'll see this will come up over and over again, this, this spot, because it's a real uh, hot spot in imaging studies, in, in studies that involve things like uh, 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 sustaining a loss uh, in a gambling task, or in food-related activities, or in disgust, or in, in a variety of social activities that I'll describe later on. Now, the vents have this very interesting feature that, that their distribution is skewed toward the right hemisphere. So uh, Bill Hopkins talked about left hemisphere specialization. So this is definitely a right hemisphere specialization. So if they're the same number, if they were the same number, they would fall between the right and left hemispheres. They would fall along this line. So we're talking here about the ratio between the, the left and, and uh, the right and the left, so that, that in newborn humans, they're about the same number in a relatively small number uh, in uh, FI, and then in all postnatal cases uh, in both humans and in, and, in, and in the apes, we find more in the uh, right side than the left, typically 30 to 40 percent more. And this is probably part of a larger system that is also rightward skewed. Uh, that's the unseant fasciculus. Note this, this large fiber bundle, which is located very close to the location of FI and probably, uh, in fact, contains some of the fibers we think uh, that uh, may be coming, being emitted by the vents, which we know are projection neurons. Um, and we're testing that right now. But the, this system of the unseant fasciculus uh, is shown here in comparisons both in, in uh, this is the volume of the encephasiculus being greater on the right side in both controls and schizophrenics, uh, and then in the number of axons within the encephasiculus. So this is typically about 29% more on the right side by volume, and maybe 33, 34% more uh, on the right side with respect to fiber number, and that's very close to what we're seeing for the, for the uh, skewing for the vents. Now, 
recently I've begun to be, uh, be involved in studies of, of centenarian brains. And this is the brain of a 104-year-old lady uh, uh, and who is not demented. Uh, and, and because we have access to a, a, a very well-documented population of, 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 of elderly uh, individuals uh, studied by David Bennett and his colleagues at Rush University in Chicago, who has uh, on the order of 2,500 subjects in his population, all of whom will go to autopsy, uh, we can have very well-documented cases where the histopathology is well understood. Many other aspects of genetics and morphology are known for these, and the clinical picture, we can, we can show that they're not demented. Uh, so we've begun to study this. I plotted the first few that we studied. It's quite laborious to do these counts, but this is, um, this is across the span of life. So this up to 35 weeks post-conception, there are no vents in FI. Uh, at birth, there are relatively small numbers. This is a, a very late-term infant, uh, uh, three, to four, three weeks post-term. Uh, 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 suggesting the number of vents is increasing at about that time. Uh, and these are infants. We have this one extreme outlier here, but typically uh, from infancy on through uh, uh, into middle age, late middle age, we're typically having about 100,000 vents uh, in the right FI. And then we consider our centenarians. And I was just astounded by this. This is the data point for the brain that I just showed you. Say two to five times as many bends. Uh, and I don't know what to make of that, but it does appear that there, that there are more. And we have about an additional 20 cases that we can do, so we can really nail this down, whether this is in fact the case. But one of the interesting hypotheses that we have about the frontal insular cortex is that it is a master homeostatic regulator, and so you might expect that, that superior homeostatic regulation might be related to longevity. Um, this is a, a work showing uh, that when people sustain a gambling loss, uh, that they get what in the jargon of the, of the behavioral economist, a risk prediction error. And that is powerfully uh, activates this part of the insulin. In fact, this is right where the benzer is particularly concentrated in FI. So gambling loss is, is, activates this structure very well. Now, another thing that, that activates, and we think of this as, as Basically, economics is about foraging. Economics is about foraging choices in which you make the appropriate choices to get what you need to survive nutritionally. And we think that there's evidence that frontal insular cortex is something like an hedonic reward map and that that, that evolved under conditions of making foraging choices. Uh, and so another way of putting it is that it's a higher order chemosensory cortex, both taste and smell. So in this work by Dana Small, again, we have uh, activation by flavored stimuli here in the same locality, uh, this then rich region of FI. And interestingly, when uh, they presented discordant flavors, uh, unusual unappetizing flavors that activated this more extreme lateral region. And uh, when they produced more co coherent, more uh, aesthetically pleasing flavors, it was a little bit more medial uh, to that, suggesting that there may be something like a flavor topic map or a donic map 
within the structure. Now, if you do the same thing with disgusting odors, that also activates the same locality. Um, And one of the things that we're working on now, because there's a beautiful uh, mapping of olfactory uh, stimuli that we can relate to psychophysics, we're we're testing a hypothesis that uh, there would be a a odor-flavor map within this, uh, this structure. Now, related to this, and now we're looking at the mouse, uh, this is anterior insula in the mouse, and these little spots here are in situ hybridizations of a class of cells located here, uh, which are, 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 are expressing neuromedin B. NMB is a gut uh, a, a gene that makes gut peptides that are crucial for, for peristalsis and for, for the regulation of gastric uh, uh, enzyme release. It's very specific. So what's it doing up here? Well, it seems to also be involved in the central nervous system and the regulation of appetite, which is consistent with this. Now, um, it turns out the neuromedin B is, is, is beautifully expressed on the vens, and rather selectively on the vens, and also expressed on a related population of cells called the fork neurons uh, that are, are, are located uh, and specialized features of this, of this area. Now, if you present uh, 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 a disgusting taste, or if a subject sees a disgusting food, or if they just imagine tasting a disgusting food, you get activity in the same locality in FI. Uh, Now here, if you uh, present unpleasant taste to someone, they wrinkle up their nose in in this characteristic disgust uh, facial expression as opposed to tasting something pleasant. Uh, And that results in a uh, a movements of the nose uh, of this tissue here, these muscles, that you can record electromyographically. And so you get uh, uh, this this activity here associated with the unpleasant. uh. You also get this, however, in the ultimatum game, when people are presented with what they perceive as unfair distributions, so resentment. So resentment reduces, produces the same facial expressions and that you can record electromyographically, and it also produces the same activity in the insula, the same location within the insula associated with social disgust, with having received an unfair distribution. Important politically. <laughs> okay, more broadly speaking, Kurth and his colleagues did a meta-analysis of 1,768 experiments involving almost 12,000 subjects in which the, the, the social experiments are coded in blue here, and it's clearly strongly localized in area FI. So that's very powerful evidence that FI is involved in social uh, uh, behavior. Now, area FI is also is particularly involved in social emotions that are related to social error. And those involve disgust, resentment, embarrassment, deception, guilt, empathy, and humor. And these uh, emotions often motivate corrective behaviors, and these corrective behaviors may be defective in autistic individuals. And we know that this area has reduced activity quite significantly and selectively in autistic individuals. Now, Carly Watson and I did an experiment where we worked with humor and we took 100 cartoons from the far side in the New Yorker, and we rated them in the scanner. Uh, and the activity of the left eye is associated parama- uh, with the, the degree of funniness of the cartoon, suggesting uh, registration of social error uh, specific to the structure. 
Now, broadly speaking then, we think that this system is basically originated for the regulation of food intake and consumption versus rejection. So overall, if we, if we look to the top here, uh, that we have the, the paradigm contrast between lust, consumption, and disgust, rejection. So the pro-social to anti-social poles. But that generalizes to a number of other uh, poles, such as love and hate, gratitude, resentment, self-confidence, embarrassment, trust, distrust, empathy, contempt, approval, disdain, pride, humiliation, truthfulness, deception, and atonement of guilt, many of which we think are things that are certainly characteristic of humans. Now, if you, uh, the imaging studies show the specific activation of FI for the underscored regions, uh, underscored social emotions, and I suspect if somebody did the other ones, you'd find them as well. Now, recently, Peter Williamson and I wrote a book about these things called The Human Illnesses, uh, which we summarized the relationship of some of this to neuropsychiatric disorders. But I'm going to talk about one particular one now, which is frontal temporal dementia. And this arose from a collaboration that I developed uh, quite a number of years ago with Bill Seeley, who uh, is a neurologist at the University of California, San Francisco, who is a specialist in frontal temporal dementia and who recently won a MacArthur Award for his work in this area. And so frontal temporal dementia or FTD, is associated with a loss of emotional intimacy, first noted by, the, by one's spouse, uh, by a loss of empathy, by a loss of embarrassment, a loss of insight, a loss of the normal sense of humor. They develop very bizarre senses of humor. A loss of self-awareness, loss of theory of mind, a loss of social graces, a loss of the sense of the future. They live in the present. A loss of capacity for parenting. One of, one of Bill's patients, he asked the daughter of his patient at Christmas time, what do you want for Christmas? And he, the little girl said, to not have daddy home, <laughs> which is all of a tragedy, I think. A loss of impulse control, a loss of control of food intake, so that they typically gain weight, uh, is consistent with the general idea that this structure is involved in, in appetite regulation, and, and they lose control of swallowing, and that kills them. So Bill did this meta-analysis showing that FI and anterior cingulate, the vein-containing areas, uh, are, have been highlighted in many functional imaging studies of frontal temporal dementia. And so what we did then is we, we, um, we compared normal individuals, individuals with Alzheimer's disease, in which the vents look actually pretty normal. They're, they're, they're well spared, we think. And then in frontal temporal dementia, the vents become severely dysmorphic or actually die. The, uh, actually, this occurs by at least two different mechanisms. So this Pick's disease variant of frontal temporal dementia is a disorder of tau, uh, and F FTLD is associated with another uh, entirely separate mechanism. Nevertheless, they produce a similar phenotype, which involves the destruction of the vents. So if you, this is what we obtained from uh, layer five at, in normals, uh, very similar in uh, numbers in Alzheimer's disease. Uh, so we have a, a, a dementia control. Uh, and then in frontal temporal dementia, about a three-quarters reduction in the population of VENs. And the, many of the ones that are survived are severely dysmorphic. And we can see there are certain situations in which patients with frontal temporal dementia die at, at early ages. And we can see the Venn loss at, uh, at, at the earliest observable stages of the, of the disease.
And then finally, I want to thank the many folks that have helped me uh, on this, and also particularly the funding with the McDonald Foundation has been wonderful, and Simons and National Institutes of Mental Health, and cast of thousands. Anyway, thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.